Next week on Blind Insights, which one's better, cricket or footy? I think footy because you get to rough people up in it next time on Blind Insights. Public service announcement. Good evening, listeners. It has been a very long time since we recorded Blind Drunk, so we're going to. Please enjoy. Go to your other subscription. Beer in hand, I'm joined by my fellow not-quite-yet-drunk friends, <laughs> David Olney, how are you? Good evening, Tim. And Peter Thompson, thank you for joining us. Good evening. <laughs> and uh, uh, Winston Churchill, thank you for joining us as well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, it's been um, a strange time. We haven't had these outlets to uh, express all our strange thoughts and feelings oh, that sounded a bit mushy didn't it anyway uh, <laughs> i have no thoughts and feelings i just manage the black dog mm. well and this is a good way to manage i think so hopefully Wolf. the listeners can uh, get something out of that too and feel like they're a part of the ride yeah <laughs> that might be enough churchill because it's very hard to sip whiskey and do churchill <laughs> churchill would, may return later you would think that it was um it <laughs> easier to do <laughs> churchill so this is the problem because i have to think to be churchill Mm. Or to do my elimination, it's actually more difficult. You know, thinking and drinking. Not so very helpful. Yeah, thinky drinky. No, thinky <laughs> drinky, just drinky drinky. So what are people drinking? Oh God, don't ask me. Because <laughs> you don't know or you don't want to admit. I don't want to admit. Uh, I'm coronavirus edition, so we're all dealing with what we've got on hand, I suppose. <laughs> I have um, some five seats. <laughs> What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you haven't dropped fruit tingles in it, we're all good. Oh, man, but the sugar content is probably worse than a fruit tingle. Yeah, but anyway. now you're getting the advantage of a sugar high and an alcohol uh, high. Good point. So actually, it was really well thought out and it was on purpose. Yeah, just don't spin around and around and get your head wrapped up in the cable. <laughs> and uh, and yourself, Peter? Oh, I'm drinking a delicious, uh, furfy, refreshing ale. Lovely. And that's meant to be the, the new VB. Is that the way that uh, they describe it? <laughs> oh, yeah, or I national, certainly hope so. Or National <laughs> Coopers. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's a nail rather than a lager, and you can get it everywhere. So it's a bit like Cooper's Pale in that sense. It's so good. It's just It's got just enough flavor in there to make it interesting, but not too much that you couldn't smash a couple and, um, and not feel like a, um, you know, a bouquet had been disposed in your mouth. So it's... <laughs> Just right perfectly. on the stalks. Mm. I love it. And yourself, David, you're obviously drinking whiskey, so probably something. I am on the Nikka Kofi Grain, which is okay. truly lovely. And it's in the glass that Tim got me for Christmas. And if you fill this glass to the widest point, that equates to four shots. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to let everyone know what, what's written on the, gra on the glass? It says David's Stoic Fuel. So I'm powered by whiskey or bourbon of various varieties at different times. Awesome. I'm glad we got that out there. It needed more uh, attention, I think. Mr. Whiffin, where's my cigar? <laughs> True. We should absolutely do that. Oh, no, because you're, you're, not, you're not into smoking cigars anymore, hey? I love the smell of them before they're lit. I might just mm. sort of sit there and just sniff it. That'd mm. be probably more enjoyable. Mm. Well, it raises an interesting point, and I'm not going to let you know how I know this, but 
there's been all this talk about how you know some th- some prices of, of things are going to inflate like it would probably make sense that the price of toilet paper would inflate because the demand is so high at the moment but uh, one thing that hasn't and this is a slightly strange conversation but uh, mar- the price of marijuana has not risen at all and is probably in higher demand than it ever has been considering so many people have all this free time to just get stoned around the house yeah, but they also have free time to get their hydroponic crop going yeah well that's true so more how, many, how many sheds and spare rooms have been converted by bored people in the last five weeks? Yeah, I wonder, we should, we should, I mean, I, I don't know whether this is an investigation worth having, but going to the, like the hydroponic supplies places and seeing how their sales are going. They've been smashed for people claiming, I'm growing tomatoes in winter. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Everyone's growing, like you know, Bunnings are selling out of seeds, so. Mm-hmm. And people might be buying those seeds and then just going home and go, seeds, Chuck. All I really wanted was the hydroponic kit. <laughs> I think the price probably hasn't changed. If our listeners don't know, South Australia is kind of a haven for cannabis. It's had a, um, a decriminalized status for quite a while and has a fairly big stoner culture. I think the, the, the reason the price might be remaining the same is, is because of the illicit nature of it. So, because there's no posted prices anywhere, everybody only knows what things generally go for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. J-bag around 25 bucks, ounce around 250 bucks, uh, that type of thing. So you're not going to see much fluctuation. If a dealer decides to charge $40 for a J-bag or you know, $300 for an ounce, people might just think, oh, that's, that's elevated and kind of shy off. So I, I think it's in a weird way, the kind of illicit nature of it and the secretive nature of it is keeping the prices relative. It's funny that you mention it, Tim. I was having a conversation with a, a, with a friend of mine and he was talking about his dealer and he expressed the same thing. He said, hey, you know, are prices, have you got enough? Uh, you know, are prices going to skyrocket astronomically? And the guy said, no, 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 we've got enough. And business is booming. And he was, he was thrilled. He said, this is the best thing that's happened for, uh, for marijuana dealers in, in, the, in um, recent memory. See, I have to wonder how many people racing around the burbs on their motor scooter theoretically is Uber Eats delivery. Oh, how many I... Uber Eats people are delivering dope at the same time? Mm. You know, oh, doing double delivery and got two phones. The official one tracking them for Uber Eats and the second one with their dealer putting the orders in and to zip back and forth because they're not going to attract any attention. If you're out there in your high vis and you've got, you know, cardboard bags in your luggage compartment on your little scooter and you constantly go in the front door with a bag and coming back without it, who's going to notice? That's fascinating. <laughs> that, type of, uh, that type of service is really big in, um, in, I know it's big in Sydney, that's a thing. I know in New York, it's a huge thing. To your door, drug delivery is a, is a huge booming industry, apparently. Well, I so, guess it uh, makes the user feels safer, the dealer feels safer, and the person that's viewed as throwaway to both of them is the person in the middle. Mm. And I guess that's the thing, you're the one in the middle, so you've got to make your money while you can, but knowing the dealers will throw you to the wolves and the users will throw you to the wolves. Mm. Not really that different to delivering pizza. Mm. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, you would expect that more people are ordering Uber Eats and, and doing all those things precisely because they're stoned. Mm. Well, and vice versa. Yeah, so to start with, you got stoned because you were bored and then you ate food because you were stoned yeah. and then you came off both and you were bored and then the cycle starts again. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, this well, could make for some really weird humans going back to the workforce after this. 
well, when we talk about the 10 kilos, they you know, become addicted yeah. and the, the world's not quite functioning the way it used to. Because we talk about functioning alcoholics coming off this break a lot, because it seems to be a way that uh, I'm not sure if you know, I'm drinking a lot more now, but it's a few over several nights as opposed to many over one or two nights a week, if right. that makes sense. So yeah. what I found interesting is this week, sort of the week where I've sort of fallen back into almost normal levels of drinking. Interesting. And that um, is, there's no desire when bored to drink a bit more because it's like, Oh man, I was just interrupting my practice and you go through the nice bottle of whiskey faster. So why bother? Yeah. True. So it wasn't any deep decision. Oh, I've got to, you know, drink less, blah, blah, blah. It was just like, I don't actually feel like it. Oh, that's positive. I mean, the whiskey will last longer. Well, why do you think that is, David? Why are you not feeling like it as much? I, I do think it is that thing because I judge so much by how do I feel as I'm doing my yoga practice in the morning. Mm. That where I was starting to realize, you know, when we were, you know, literally eating exciting Uber Eats and drinking whiskey regularly because we were bored by the end of the day and just to manage the stress of it's all a bit unknown what we're going through. Mm. I started realizing that, you know, kicking myself up into the air in the morning in, you know, the yoga practice was harder work. Mm. Like, well, that sucks. I know I'm 48 years old and it's going to get harder one day, but I'm not prepared to get harder in 10 days because of calories and alcohol. Right. Ah, so I see. And I thought, well, do I really want to cut them? And I thought, well, I'm not going to deliberately try and cut this because that seems like an artificial thing to do. Let's see, does it just wean itself off? And unconsciously, brain said, no, we like a couple of nights of some whiskey. That's good. <laughs> we like a couple of nights of Uber Eats. That's good. But the other five days, just eat normal food and don't drink. Right. David, you take care of your brain to the extent that it takes very good care of you. A similar story could be said of how all of a sudden you became very bored of cigars. Yeah. Yeah. The cigar thing was really weird. And I don't know if I've ever told the story on a podcast, but you know, when John Bruni's daughter was born, he brought back some beautiful Dominican Republic cigars, I think from a trip to the Gulf. And he bought one back for each of us to share, to celebrate Gabby's birth. I think it was the weekend after she was born. And I started it and it was amazing. And I got halfway through it and my brain just said, yuck, no more. And I ended up, I think, you know, sort of tamping it out, grabbing the cigar cutter and chopping it a bit beyond so that John could, you know, use the other half of the cigar later. Cause I didn't want to waste it cause it was lovely, but just the switch had flicked. I never entirely understood how it flicked, but since that point I've not wanted a cigar since. And that's now, Golly, must nearly be nine years. Mm. There's a phenomenon that I think Jordan Peterson brought up in a wonderful interview with Ian McGilchrist, who's the author of The Master and His Emissary. Which That's is a, a cool name for a book. What's it about? It's about uh, the uh, interactions between conscious and unconscious processes in the brain. Anyway, Ooh. he mentions just cursorily, uh, cursorily in the interview a, Piagetian, a, ph a phenomenon called a Piagetian stage transition. And it sounds like that's what you experience. And that's when basically you have the, uh, let's say you have a mental model, which is all of your enjoyment of smoking composed of the, the sensations, the enjoyable company, all of your experiences. But then there's also, there are also parallel mental structures that are being built, not used at all. They're completely unused, but they're still being constructed in parallel, 
one of those mental models was the healthy David mental model, whatever kind of idea you have of it now. And that cigar was the very last part of stimulus. Yeah, exactly. That made that mental framework more relevant than the mental framework than that you had had previously. And it might've incorporated desire to, um, you know, live long in a very, very healthy way, or probably uh, multiply determined a whole bunch of things. Anyway, that's the, that's the concept of a Piagetian stage transition, I believe. That's a cool name. And I'm going to try and remember the name of that book, the master and his emissary. Yes. If you're interested, if our listeners are interested, if you type in Jordan Peterson and the master and his emissary, you'll probably get that interview. And it's a real start there and then see if you want the book after. Absolutely. Yeah. Snorter of an interview. So check that out. That's an interesting idea because if I look at that period, okay, Karen would have come back from Canberra. We would have been living here in North Adelaide and I wouldn't have started yogi yet. Mm. So I wouldn't have been on the farm anymore. So I wouldn't have been farm fit. And farm fit's a weird term, and I'm not sure not farmers would understand it. But farmers don't set out to do exercise in any deliberate way. But if you're on a farm and you're looking after animals and you're moving hay and you're moving feed and you're cleaning troughs, you end up with this level just where you can work all day, even though going to the gym would probably kill you. Mm, right. Um, and I'd lost my farm fit probably by the time of the cigar. Mm. Well, not lost it, but was probably in the process of losing it because you know, okay, moved in the apartment 2011, started yoga 2014. So it was really three and a half years between off the farm and starting yoga. And Youngblood commented when I started yoga, wow, you're strong. Well, it's only residual farm fit. It's not like I actually do anything anymore. Right. It's like functional fitness sort of. Yeah, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Very cool. It reminds me of, this is partially due to the narrow, <laughs> the narrowness of my book catalog but it reminds me of the elephant from the happiness hypothesis the elephant and the rider yep. mm. being your your kind of conscious brain is much smaller in mass than your kind of subconscious and you're kind yep. of having to drive this entire large lumpy sort of stupid elephant uh, you know, the point <laughs> is and i think this is important he called her an elephant it's not stupid it's just not controllable mm. the point of calling an elephant is this thing yeah, let's look at elephants. They have family. They remember how to get between water holes. They remember the last place where the food dries out in a drought. They remember how to move hundreds of kilometers to get mm. to a safer place to beat a calf. They go visit, you know, their sort of parents, grandparents' bones like they're visiting a grave. I think this is very significant. You know, it's not just an elephant in the size differential. No. It's the fact that it's a consciousness but not a, it's, we don't know if elephants are aware of being aware of being themselves. Mm. And that's the, the, that classic question in consciousness. Are you aware that you're aware that you're you? I'm going to have to break that one down real, real simple. <laughs> yeah, that's a Barney style one. It takes a while to get it simple enough, doesn't it? Are you aware of being aware of being you? Yeah. I think I'm going to need to do another can before I can get my head around that one. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, being aware of being you is just like, you know, you did it. Oh, okay. Okay. So I see. Yep. Yep. But if you're aware of being aware, it's you watched you noticing you did it, mm. which is sort of the level of human consciousness. If we abstract away from the physicality to sort of, you know, the most extreme extent that has any, I think, value. You know, it's that wonderful thing. Like there's so much stuff written about mindfulness 
it's like, oh, you must quiet your mind. Blah, blah, blah. Bullshit, your mind never shuts up. Mm. And there was a wonderful thing, and I only found the YouTube video once, and it was two in the morning where I'd woken up after one sleep cycle and I was bored. So I just thought, oh, I'll just see what pops up on my channel on YouTube. Well, not my channel, but you know, my feed of all the things I'm subscribed to. And it was an Indian yoga guru saying, why would you want to quiet your mind? It's what makes you you. Mm. You just have to know how to ignore it when it's not being interesting or useful. But that's, that's an interesting thought though. Like the same skills that I think allow you to ignore certain things that go on your brain are the same kinds of skills that allow you to like acutely focus on something. It seems precisely again, Mm. letting your brain go, pizza, ice cream, pizza, ice cream, pizza, ice cream. Fine. But being able to step away from it and sit down and write, Mm. isn't shutting the pizza and ice cream up. It's just temporarily turning the volume down on it. So the murmur is there. You know, your unconscious is still busy doing its thing, but your conscious gets to do what it wants to do for a while without being interrupted by pizza and ice cream. That's a much healthier idea than the the misrepresentation of mindfulness that you will somehow quiet your mind. Mm. I don't quiet my mind. My mind is really interesting. I just don't want to hear it all the time. (laughs) It's it's interesting because they're kind of thinking de- diving deep into the um, into the elephant analogy because elephants have their own kind of their own desires their own wants Precisely. and I suppose what and this is funny because if you think about what a good elephant trainer would be like an elephant trainer establishes or a mahut mahut or whatever you want to call it establishes a relationship with the elephant so that the elephant trusts that the rider's intentions are in the elephant's mutual interest. Oh man, that's so important. Do you know, do you know what I mean? So yes. Yes. And, and actually that's, that has actually helped me look at the, uh, that elephant and rider proposition in an entirely different way. That's, that's huge. really cool. Cause mm. really the implication of that being, if you try to dominate the elephant, if you try and be a mean bastard with a whip, Mm. it's just going to break you mm-hmm. one day. It will wait and it won't ever work hard and properly. You have to gain the trust of the unconscious and have it willing to go, okay, I'd rather not do that, but because it's you, mm. I'll do it. So it, it goes back to, was it Suzanne Eder or Courtney Warren, Tim, where it was about being kind to yourself. It was basically both. But both in different ways, wasn't yeah. it? But being kind to yourself, which I've been historically bad at on my brain. Because mm. I've so many times gone, all right, there's option A, which is whatever. And there's option B, be a blind person that gets nothing done ever. Just fucking well do option A. Yeah. And there's been no kindness in that. There's just been bloody well do it. And every now and then it causes a major rupture of feeling that whatever I'm working on is completely pointless because there was never any connection to it. And so much of my brain has really been in revolt to it for an extended period of time. You can do the opposite kind of thing. You can let the elephant, let's say, take more control. Be too, yeah, which be is too what all these people it. who blurt do. Mm. I mean, that is kind of, when we say letting our elephants take control, that makes me, that, that's kind of how, it reminds me of how I used to live, especially when I was a, a young man, like a, kind of in my early, in my late teenage years, my early 20s. I used to think that the way to live life was think about the things that were good, you know, ice cream, 
orgasms. I think I've used that example on here before. Mm. And then to just maximize the amount of ice cream and orgasms that you could have. Until you desensitize to them and then have to look for what's next. I know. It's frustrating. Mm. And that's why actually getting the balance is so important, isn't it? Mm. Because you can get to the point of being desensitized to the unconscious getting all the toys it wants. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's why Netflix binging becomes completely dissatisfying. Because it's like, it's not as if these things that we get addicted to or the things that we habituate to have no merit to them. No, they start with merit. Or they start with potential for merit, at least. Sure, sure. But we undermine them by going more, 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 more. Until we flatline on them, it's like, bored now. So for a practical... Some of the things we get bored with, we really shouldn't get bored with. Mm. Like listening to beautiful music. There's times where I just go, I'm sick of music at the moment. What a weird thing to have happen. Mm. Well, it's, it's like there's the, there's, is it dopamine that mediates that? Uh, I, yeah, think it's, I think so. The, the fascinating thing about dopamine is people think about it, or I won't say people, I'll use myself. I used to think about it only as the pleasure of the thing, the pleasure of getting yeah. the thing. But it's also really strongly tied to motivation. Motivation regarding the thing as well. Yeah, so that, and you get more from the anticipation. Again, right. the hunt is what gives you the buzz when you get it. Without the hunt, the buzz would be very small. Right, yeah. It's what makes online so shopping so fun. You get to do all that research, and then it's probably not that great when you get to open it, but doing all the research to work yeah. out exactly what you want is very fun. Yeah, see, this is the thing. If, if you enjoy the research and you enjoy learning about things, the anticipation, and I found particularly with things like whiskeys, where I'll happily... You know, take a half hour and read all the reviews and work out which version of a distillery's whiskey I want to try, work out what's the best bang for buck of the ones I can afford. And what it means is by the time I get it, you know, potentially it's not going to live up to the standard. You know, if it does, it means it's really good and I'm probably going to like it forever. Mm. But if that first sip is like, mm, that didn't meet the research, mumble, mumble, it's almost already killed it. Mm. So it's why at some level what I've learned is anything I think I want to try or do, do enough research to know I want to, but don't over-research, which risks it not possibly living up to the anticipation. All right. So for the practical Zach's listening, what would you guys suggest are good practices, let's say, to manage this rider, ridey... relationship in terms of dopamine make sure you're not doing the things that you love that cause a a huge dopamine rush too often yeah or Um, you'll lose the bars or you'll lose you'll lose the magic but it's so heavily inbuilt into our society that it's kind of difficult to avoid so don't feel bad if you're sucked into it because i think there was an interview with one of the founding facebook guys and he was talking about the facebook design process and how they were literally talking about neuroscience and dopamine and they designed the app to mindfully oh, to, yeah. at a neurological to, level, it's addictive. Yeah, they designed it to yes. be addictive. They yeah. because that would be the best way to maximize um, maximize revenue from the app. Yeah, I heard that the other day. I think they've tried to scrub the, the existence of that from. Uh, yeah, they from used the to be internet. too honest for being so nerdy. They thought other people would find their nerdy greed interesting, mm. not not realizing that the greed is more of it than the nerdiness. Mm. Look, I, I, I honestly can't give 
any advice about the rider or the or the elephant. I'm in, an incredibly undisciplined person. I'm remarkably undisciplined. Yeah, so, you go for a walk with your dad every day. You go lift weights with your friend regularly. You have no problem doing long days during Finge of pushing big heavy bins around. Mm, you have no problem with some discipline. Mm, yeah, maybe you're right. You've but, got a work ethic. It's just, it's it's yeah. managing the time. I'm I'm very much the same. I can sit down and focus on something and keep myself focused on something. I'm just awful at starting stuff and I'm awful at managing my time to make sure that I actually start something when I say I'm going to do it. I suppose you're both thinking I'm going to have some profound answer. Yes, and we're counting on We'd it. We'd love it. Oh, man. <laughs> nah, look, I think the biggest thing in the world is to be aware that the rider and elephant are in conflict. And I'd not ever thought of it as clearly as Peter's example, that really the successful Mahout, the successful person training an elephant, wins the trust of the elephant over. And yet, you know, from earlier in the year, reading uh, John Demartini's book, The Values Factor, realizing that so often I've just brutalized my brain into doing whatever the best available option was as a blind person immaterial of having no real interest in it. It was just another way to make sure I was seen as credible, useful and worth paying money to. And the, the one thing I can say is the sooner you realize that if you can win the trust of your unconscious over and just mediate it a little bit, get it on side more often than not, things are a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So at the moment where I'm now pretty sure that March next year, you know, as long as I can get a spot in it, that I will start a master's in strategic communications. And I am so excited to do something that fits with podcasting, that fits with media, that fits with messaging, that might give me the skills to help very smart people pitch their brilliant ideas better so they get a wider uptake of the clever things they've invented. I couldn't be more excited, which is weird because for once what my unconscious wants to do and what I'm actually going to do looks like it really nicely fits together. Ah, that's cool, man. That is cool. That's one of those times where you're in the right time and place and you line all of these different factors up together. I think this is, this is, this is the, we're going to bring it back to Jordan Peterson here. Like that is the message that I think I most cling on to about when he describes finding meaning in your life. Yeah, which is that you line all these kinds of different things up together and yep. they just feel right and you're in the right place at Look the right at the time. Pattern and when they're lined up, hit the gas straight away and take advantage of them being lined up. Mm. So and- really, audience, I'm sorry to cut you off, Tim. Just don't think you can brutalize your brain into compliance and don't think that your unconscious will leave you alone and do anything sensible without you putting some limitations on but you'll limit the excesses of your unconscious better by working with it than trying to brutalize it into compliance. I want to kind of just comment on two things. I think that were brought up one thing I like that Peter said, which was that um, our society is something like in part of our society kind of embeds this kind of abusive uh, dopaminergic systems and that you shouldn't necessarily feel too bad about, being behind where maybe you you could or should be no, in, in terms of in terms of your discipline the um, reason the reason that they're doing it is because it works yep they wouldn't do it if it didn't make money and get them fine sorry tim please continue. no no i just because i where i am not kind and this is kind of brings up the other point which david was talking about when you're being kind to yourself and 
being kind to yourself is, is kind of twofold. It's, it's, it's not beating yourself up, but it's also making sure that you do things that put yourself in a better position. So I am too often, I beat myself up about not doing, not being disciplined, not doing something that I should have done. And I, I get so irrationally and completely defeated by that, that it actually has such a domino effect on me. When I'm on a good streak, I will usually continue that for a while. And uh, I, I'm, I'm far too easily defeated by these kinds of lapses in discipline. So I, I really relate to both of those. Or I, I really like kind of connecting those two things because I need to probably work on being a little bit kinder to myself about falling out of my, my discipline patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that's how we both got, again, to go back out of Susan Eder and Courtney Warren. You know, we both reflected going, yeah, we're not really being kind to ourselves in the way they're suggesting. And again, both of them said, love yourself. And I just concluded flatly, no, nah, male of my age group and brain that I've got, that's not available as an option. <laughs> I can be kind to me, loving me, nah. <laughs> the practical example that I will give of that is... And, and, it, and it is so uncomfortable. It is ridiculously uncomfortable. But if you were to collate, let's say, the entire library of self-help, one thing that you would probably draw from it is repeating, whether it be like actually saying it or, or just kind of cycling through it in your mind, repeating self-affirming phrases. And let's say the writer is disciplining the elephant into positive or reaffirming phrases that basically habituate a response to any kind of circumstance with, I can handle this well done, uh, keep going, things like that uh, to, so that when things fall down, you're not beating yourself up and you're not telling yourself that you should have done better when you've done well. Um, so I guess that it's, it's like a really strange thing to do. And I'm not sure how you feel about this, David, kind of having those, um, generational constraints, but I find it just, it's, it's really strange. And I, and you feel like a dickhead kind of talking about it, but like, you just kind of have to sit there and you're like, Hmm, I, I did do pretty well at that. Cause if, it, cause for me, if I'm not saying those things, I'm doing the exact opposite. Like if I'm not thinking those things, I'm doing the exact opposite. Yeah. I guess my thing with affirmations is for me, they just can't be praise. They have to be, if you do this, then this other thing will happen. So if you fall down, it gives you a chance to prove you can stand up and you stood up lots of times before, which means you can stand up again. So to me, the praise has to come out of the repetition of a positive process. You know, the praise is in the repetition, not in doing it once. Yeah, I'm not sure that is expressed as well as I mean it to be, but I just can't get the words better at the moment. But for me, it's about going, it's okay for it to go wrong as long as you implement the process to learn from it and try and move beyond it mm. and to not you know, directly repeat it tomorrow. Mm. It's interesting because it's, it's not, you know, affirmations are not something that, that I guess are explicitly kind of referenced in stoic thinking, but, yet it seems in some ways like a stoic practice. Well, the Stoics would say the more you practice the bad day, the more you know you can cope with the bad day. So the affirmation is not, I am amazing. The affirmation is, I am sure I can cope. 
So there's something different. Actually, maybe this is it. Mm, it would always be active. If for a stoic, the affirmation would always be an active thing. I can cope. It would not be I am amazing. It would be I can cope or I can overcome. I feel so like that's, there's something the missing the there, though. Well, there probably is. But again, there were the Stoics in Rome. Things were violent. Children died young. There wasn't enough food. Mm. Lots of things went wrong. They were probably being as positive as you could be in what was, for most people, a pretty hard and very short life. Mm. True. The fact we live a long time. Medical interventions tend to work. You know, food is not normally a problem for most people in the developed world that our affirmations become gentler and more positive because our time, if you're lucky and you live where we live is gentler and you have more time. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's problematic or not. It's like, I think it is problematic. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like saying that, that is problematic in itself creates problems for the lifestyle that we live and then puts yourself in contention with being, which is not really what you want to do. It's like, well, I'm going to just deject myself from modern society and, and, you know, found Jonestown or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it can be less extreme than that. Just from my experience of being blind, not ever really fitting means I don't take that standard too seriously. I judge the, the standard of society. I judge myself against the standard of society, not through how I behave, but can I earn enough to be comfortable? Like, I don't want to behave like other people. In the main, they spend too much time just being mellow and having fun. And if I did that, I'd never be organized enough to get through the day being blind. So the only thing I tend to judge against is if I put this much effort in, can I extract enough resources to buy downtime that I actually enjoy with people I care about doing things I like? Mm. So maybe I'm still in a more Roman stoic era in terms of how I'm perceiving and relating to the world, because if I can't directly fit in it and win by its standards, it gives me the freedom to work by the standards that give me the best chance of being relatively calm and relatively happy and relatively balanced, which is why I always make the point to my students, you know, you would have heard it too. Peter, you've heard me say it, even though I've never taught you, I don't ever want to make mini me's. And a very big part of that as a teacher is not because I don't think what I do has value, but I realize I stand too far outside of the normal to want anyone else to stand that far outside of normal. That was a conversation killer. Yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. no it's just, a, it's, no, it's just trying to absorb that point. It's brilliant. It really got at the heart of what we're talking about. So I'm going to try and use the elephant analogy. Mm. So when you first started talking about the elephant again, Peter, mm-hmm. and you, know, you made the great thing about having to you know, gain the trust of the elephant. Now, because before that we'd been going, you know, pizza, I ice cream, pizza, ice cream. I deliberately not been saying pizza, orgasm, ice cream, pizza, orgasm, ice cream. Cause I thought you'd probably use the orgasm ice cream thing later. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be kind of stealing slash combining your thunder. Cause your line's cool. So I thought well, I'll do a different line. Oh, thanks, when Dan. I was thinking of the rogue elephant, mm. my rogue elephant was a honkingly big male elephant. That's not allowed to hang out with the civilized elephants. Mm. Cause he just goes, there's a tree. 
let's fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, right. Is, yeah. is that that's your conception of your your elephant? Is this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a line. I'm gonna crap on his head. <laughs> yeah. There's a sure. water hole. I'm gonna lay in it. If that crocodile tries to bite me, I'll just roll on the fucker. <laughs> now, try dominating that elephant. Mm. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure if this is problematic enough, but the way I would probably describe my elephant, because I like this conversation, is it's something fun. like there are some elephants that uh, I and I respect and enjoy their time. Let's try and assimilate as as hard as possible. <laughs> yeah, but that's a good model. And as we know from elephant society, there are posses of male elephants who tend not to be quite as psycho as the elephant I just described, but instead create little like clans of males who most of the year hang out, don't beat each other up, don't be weird, but are really glad of the company because they can't be part of the female families and baby elephants. That's just not how society works for elephants. But they also don't want to be the big, weird, rogue male. Hmm. So what I realise is that, you know, if you can make peace with your male rogue elephant, maybe he can enjoy one of the bachelor herds and have a fairly nice life without isolation. Hmm. But that, that's got an elephant himself on fuck down. Until he joins the bachelor herd, there's no hope of the conscious Mahout having any control. It's astounding how strangely apt this elephant description of our subconscious is. It's so good. It's so good. And of course, and this is actually interesting as well, the less, and it was kind of striking on something that we just kind of touched on, the less resources are around, the less basic, less of... Maslow's basic resources are around, the more unruly and uncontrollable the elephant is, yep. just like a real animal. And yep. the, so rather, the less control the mahout has over the, um, yep. over the animal. Like I, if we I, I don't have physical resources and we don't have safety, yes. elephant's going to be psycho. And yes. the only thing the mahout can do is starve it mm. to make it physically weak, to try and then pretend it's mentally weak. But not realizing that inside its weak body is a screaming brain that says, I'm going to break you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's like you can sit in a room full of people and then you might imagine how different the vibe of the room would be if everyone was hungry, if yeah. everyone hadn't had food that day. And it's entirely different. Yeah, oh, food for thought. That's fascinating. Everyone needs a Snickers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's another example of just like strangely perceptive advertising and kind of commercialism that just really strikes at the heart of what it like what being a human is to the point where it's like genuinely scary that the kind of corporations and things have this kind of control like Facebook. Yeah. It's like I whenever I think about someone having like the munchies or like it just being generally hungry or hangry as the, as the, yeah. the word is angry. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Is it's just, well, I think of it as a Snickers. It's and like, <laughs> I can't even eat them. I haven't had one for five years. Like, I was going to say that have to be one of, from when I used to eat chocolate bars regularly, they would have been one of my least favorite. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Like I always loved Mars bars with almonds. Mm, okay. That was my big thing. And because my Hungarian grandmother, every birthday and Christmas would get me Toblerone. 
I think probably forever. You know, like if really, if I'm ever unconscious and you need to bring me out of a coma, start unpacking and eating Toblerone in front of me. If that don't bring me back, almost nothing's going to. <laughs> I think the final year before she went into aged care, my Christmas present was a six pack of like the big, huge one kilo blocks. Oh, wow. That's crazy. It's a, it's a lot of chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> it was good. It lasted me a whole year. Mm, yeah, I bet. Yeah, Toblerone's are really nice. I love that um, the kind of wafery um, mm-hmm. flavor with the chocolate. What is it? What is like nougat pieces or something? Yeah, nougat and nuts and then the chocolate and the outside. But it seems that for something pretty mainstream, each ingredient in it is the nicest end of affordable. Yeah. Mm. Yep, I'd say that. And not That's many such things a good... are like that. So price to price to value, what price to price to quality is actually price high. to quality point the ratio whatever it is yeah. Hmm. See so again, you talk about ads for things that you guys. It's going to be a little bit out of your wheelhouse of interests, but yeah, you know, some listeners will be aware. You know, I collect beautiful pocket knives. That's just something I really like. And Benchmade make a pocket knife called the Bug Out, and their ad for it is really clever. It's the first really good knife you'll ever buy. Or the only really good knife you'll ever buy. Mm. So for people on a budget, it's likely to be the dearest thing they would ever buy. But for people who are going to get into collecting beautiful pocket knives, nearly everyone will end up with a bug out because they're just such a well-made production knife. So there's moments where marketing just captures the essence of something in a really profound way. Hmm. I've been thinking about how so much of how I think we purchase things now is, is becoming less and less about going into the store and touching it and feeling it because less and less things are on display mm. uh, and, and watching YouTube videos about the thing. And I'm just mm. not sure how distorted that has made making those kinds of choices. I think about it a lot actually, because it's like the first thing I do, if I want to buy something, I'm just going to look up a YouTube unboxing slash review slash. Mm. But how many do you watch before you choose? Oh, at least, at least I would say at least five if it's something on the cheaper side, and I'm going to say at least twenty if it's something on like above hundred bucks. Okay. Well, I would say again because you know a lot of the the beautiful pocket knives I get, I'm never going to get to hold until I get them. I've gone the other way that there are some YouTube reviewers of, of beautiful pocket knives where if three of the four agree that something is very nice, that's really all I need to know. So you need a trusted source. Yeah, it's That's that, that old thing <laughs> of, you know, it's something that Joseph and I talked about in his book in Smart Power, credibility. Yep. You know, the, the power of credibility in media. So, you know, multiple sources, if they're all bad, yeah. But, you know, credibility. So I remember when I was, I think it was Allbirds shoes, you know, the ones that they're all wool-topped and everything in them, but the laces is totally and utterly renewable. And the laces are recycled plastic bottles. You know, amazing and just mega comfortable. And for Tim, who loves wearing sports shoes, uh, all birds are now making a proper running shoe. Cool. It's called the Dasher. And I definitely, you know, I would like to feel a pair and see how kind of over the top sports shoe looking they are. But I guess I'm probably just going to have to order one online. But there, because again, I've never paid any attention to buying shoes online, watching videos, well, in my case, listening to videos, you can tell how much time I spend around sighted people. Um, was like, I'm getting really sick of this because I'm on my 11th or 12th video to find out whether I should buy a $150 pair of shoes. Why don't I just bloody well buy them and make up my own mind? That's the, so, that's the, oh, sorry, pardon. You go. No, no, please. 
No, no, no. It's I'll, just I'll a just question say. of credibility. Hmm. Uh, well, like, uh, I think the number one thing that I got from my marketing degree was the knowledge that you shouldn't deliberate uh, too much on these choices because in the end, you're going to make your decisions based on bullshit anyway. It's, it's all a total shit show. You're going to, I mean, look, if, if you've got somebody that you really trust on YouTube who talks about a particular set of things and you're familiar with them and whatever, that's actually a really great way. But there are so many other cognitive distortions that you can do. You can be after it because uh, the marketing has made it seem like it's, it's often owned by people who you want to be. Mm. You know, you can get tricked by surrogate indicators of quality. So yeah. the packaging of something can make you think that a product is superior or inferior, whether it's in a box, whether it's in a bag, whether it's, it's got a ribbon around it or whatever. And, and it's really made me just kind of go with my first instincts in, um, in buying things. Um, so you're getting the elephant, you know, have pretty much within reason its head. Yeah, I agree because, with you. Because it's what's going to happen point. is your, your elephant, I, I believe your elephant in this case already knows what it wants. Mm. It knows what it wants. The, what the process of what people call research is not so much about objectively finding the thing, although it can be, but I think in the, in the main, it's more about reassuring yourself. It's about coming up with the post hoc justifications for the thing that you feel you want anyway. Yes. It's the emotional dog wagging the rational tail. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. You've already so, had your Jonathan hate emotional dog moment. Now you need the rational table to approve of the emotional dog. Intuition yeah. first, strategic reasoning yeah. second. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're going to find the video that agrees with what so, you yeah. wanted to with buy. Discretionary spending. I think this is totally legit. Mm. Like if it's something serious, like the best value phone plan, that's sure, not discretionary sure. spending. That's a tool when you need to get it right. But really, at the end of the day, if I get it wrong on a pocket knife I only want because I want it because it's nice and interesting, yeah, if I get it wrong, what's the end of the world? I trade it on. What's the most interesting pocket knife that you have in your collection? Would you be able to describe it? Sure, I can. Um, I have a knife made by Alastair Bastian, who is an ex-jeweler, an abalone diver, and a most remarkable knife maker. And it's a frame lock folder, so... The back side of the handle is a piece of titanium where part of the handle acts as the lock. Uh, the blade is a laminated blade where the outer sides are stainless. The inner is uh, tool steel where he's hammer forged that on the anvil to get the three layers to come together. So what the Japanese would call a sanmai blade. Oh, right. Yep. Uh, the front of the knife is a beautiful, huge, thin piece of jade surrounded by sculpted stainless steel that girls tend to see as bamboo pieces joined up around the jade, guys tend to see as skeletal fingers. Ha! Huh. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool, yeah. And it, it, was, it won the category for best uh, handmade folder at the Melbourne Custom Knife Show in 2014. How and cool. Alistair just rang me one day and said, David, I made this thing. When I made it, I was thinking of you. It won the show but didn't sell. I've put it in the mail to you. If you like it, let me know, and then we can work out how much you owe me. Wow, oh, that's lovely. Oh, cool. Way cool. So, yeah. That's a very cool relationship with someone like that. Oh, look, my friend um, from Michigan who was an ex-Navy SEAL who became a knife dealer when he left it, I'd had a particularly bad month one month. And I get up and check my email one morning. He goes, hi, David. Went to a knife show on the weekend. Met an amazing young Canadian knife maker. 
bought the best thing on his table, have put it in the mail to you. If you want it, let me know and we'll work out a price. Can pay back any time in the next year. Bye for now. Cool. Such I'm a like, nice thing to do. I'm like, mm. okay, we've never actually physically met and you've just stuck, you know, a $500 American custom five-inch bladed fixed blade in the mail to me. That was in a time, oh, I suppose, because it's a gift. It doesn't matter. I was about to say it's in a time before GST applied to those purchases. Oh, no, man, you just lie. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it always used to be about the lying, which, again, doesn't work anymore. No. Uh, but also, yeah, customs used to be exciting. Like, what's that handle material? Wood. Wood could be dangerous. It's stabilized. It's full of plastic, you morons. I brought a uh, I brought a uh, machete back from Laos. At a friend oh, no. who was working had in a freak out about the sheath and the handle. No, no, no. Uh, this is this is the this is the funny thing about it. So I, I brought it back through customs. The only thing they cared about was the wood. Yeah. The fact that I had a effing wouldn't care. The, the fact that I had an effing machete in the bag. <laughs> See, the, apparently a machete, which um, for people in not in the know is one sharp side and one blunt dull side, yeah. dull side rather. Yeah. Um, that's a machete. Totally fine. If you have something that's sharp on both sides. Then it's a dagger. That's a, that's a sword. That's terribly dangerous. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's funny. I brought it back. Uh, I asked, I emailed the SA police. I said, hey, look, I've been given this gift from Lao rural people. It's a machete. How do I bring it back? And he's just like, oh, oh yeah, oh, you, just, you just bring it back in your bag. And I was like, do you want me to like fucking tape it? Tape it shut or something? Oh, oh you could if you want. So <laughs> This is a post 9-11 world, right? Yeah, this is post 9-11. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, again, I'm going to... Things- you got to remember, you can buy a bad machete at Bunnings with mm. no, you know, sentimental memory. So they're out there. It's it is a normal part of life for many humans. Yeah, well, anyway, anyway I, I did I did the whole hog. I taped it yeah. shut. I wrapped it in bubble wrap. I printed out the email from the police, the, the yeah. policeman that I was speaking to, and taped yeah. it to it, and just um, and managed to get through. Yeah. Wow. Whereas I have the weird moment, and this is another thing about the new world of you're not going on business trips to other states, where I have to remember before I go. Okay which lovely pocket knife is in my coat pocket that if I go through the airport, they're going to have a freak out. Which lovely pocket knife is in my day bag that if I go through the airport, I'm going to lose. Mm. So I deliberately now only ever have something sort of under a hundred bucks. That if I had to lose it, I'd blame myself rather than being angry at them in mm, my day right. bag. Yeah. So if it goes, it's like, okay, I'm an idiot, but I haven't lost something that can't be replaced. I haven't lost something handmade. Well, it was you know, one of a hundred. Yeah, far out. You know, my I, current nearly holy grail is something where the original version, there were only 18 ever made, and wow. each of the 18 was sold for 1,800 American each. Wow. Now he's made a deal with a company to make 400 of them at a significantly reduced price. But it's like, I ain't ever taking that thing anywhere. Yeah. Because <laughs> even one of the 400, it can't be replaced. Yeah, right. It can't ever accidentally go through an airport. Yep. Interesting. Hey, remember airports? Yeah. <laughs> What's that thing you're talking about, young Peter? Remember international travel? Back in my day, when I was young, we used to go overseas, get wasted with Swedish backpackers on Thai <laughs> beaches, and we'd get real close to them within a meter and a half. 
That all made sense when you said overseas when we thought you meant Tasmania. <laughs> oh, you, man. Yeah, do you reckon it'll be cheaper or more expensive one if to go overseas? More like, expensive. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I feel like they have to incentivize a lot of people who no, just have bad jobs. Go. Wow. Yeah, there's already artist drawings out there of what planes will look like divided into bubbles. Can you imagine what it's going to cost what? to buy a bubble seat? Oh, God. Now, if it's, it's not bubble seat, if it is Pacus in cattle class, what's it going to be like everyone having to do the two weeks isolation before they get on the plane? Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose you could, yeah, you just do it two weeks before. And then probably two weeks when you get back. Well, that's silly because then now your three-week trip to Italy is now a seven-week Yeah, but there won't trip. be three-week trips to anywhere, I don't yeah. think. I think for the foreseeable future, you go almost like in the sailing world or the, the 19th century steamship world. You go somewhere for a minimum of three to six months. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic result in terms of not hurting my wallet for our honeymoon. So that's good. <sighs> you Look, will be going, you'll be going overseas to Tasmania. Yeah, well, that's where our parents went. I wouldn't mind going there, but Jade's never Man. been overseas. So. Yeah, but again, th- you know, this is a time where you might want to, but with the ridiculous conditions. And the mm-hmm. thing is, too, which countries will we have a travel agreement with by the time you guys get married? Yeah, good point. There good might point. only be five or six places you can go. Mm. And the way Japan's looking, it ain't going to be there. No, we weren't going to go to Japan. They don't have enough vegan food. Poor Japan. <laughs> so what was the new plan for overseas? The new plan was Europe because Jade finally convinced me when we went into a travel agent, which was my suggestion, which was very silly. Um, this was before COVID. Mm. That uh, it w- wasn't going to be as expensive as I had thought for us to go to Europe. And we could do countries that I hadn't been to before and ones that I was theoretically interested in, which meant skipping France and skipping England. So, Okay. I just had a bizarre thought because I have bizarre thoughts. We used to have BC and AD before Christ and after death. Yeah. And we went to BC before common era. And B- yeah. BC before common era and then CE common era. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we've got BC before COVID era and COVID yeah. era. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. I think we did remarkably well. How long did we go tonight of doing a podcast without talking about the current world? Oh, shit. Oh, about an hour. Yeah. That's pretty freaking good, I think. Well done, us. That's the <laughs> longest conversation I've had yet that hasn't strayed to it. Well, I mean, even now we're kind of skirting around the edges, sort of. Yeah. It's actually, the point is that I would like to go overseas. Yeah. The point is we would like to be in an airport. It's just that the current situation means that we have to address the current situation. Yeah, it's, it's shitty. I'm glad that I've been entirely financially, okay, pre, pre-COVID, Felt terrible about my life decisions. Spent every penny that I had on travel, and um, and just getting out and doing stupid stuff overseas. Now I think I'm a genius. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And no, people can't go anywhere now. Yeah, oh, that's Jade. The Poor theory. Jade, though, not having been overseas. Who knows when you're going to be able to get to Bloomin' Japan now? Her biggest worry, right, is that if we don't do it now while we're young, that it will never happen. And I can mm. see her point. No, it'll happen once we sort out this pandemic, but before the next one. Yeah. Get a, well, get a hope so. inter, inter-pandemic trip going. Yeah, and that could be the company, Interpandemic Travels. <laughs> you travel when it doesn't involve quarantine. Yeah, cool. I like the idea. Well, I mean, look, um, the, the thing that I find frustrating about travel 
uh, if we're going to talk about this now, is and is that I the the cost cost to quality, let's say ratio, cost to value, yeah, yeah. ratio. I I it doesn't line up for me. I'm not. I don't really? have a travel bug. It, it, it's only ever really lined up for me when I went to Japan because I felt like the cult, the, the cultural differences were significant enough that um, I found it really fulfilling and I found it right. really enjoyable but also it was a learning experience and yes. i well I, I know that i don't really experience that in more western kinds of cultures so like oh, exploring okay. asia would just be where i want to be but jay would like to go to europe so okay okay well i mean it sounds like you get, you might be going to like um eastern europe which will be really exciting i mean that, that's going to be that's not <laughs> france if you go to kazakh i've got a good friend actually a teacher in kazakhstan who have wow. apparently done remarkably well with covid but, um, Interesting. but that's because they don't test <laughs> yeah well i think they've, i think they've been pretty aggressive with it and it seems to be paying off we'll see whether or not there's an underlying bubble that's popping up now th- this is interesting because I've been following it, Vietnam and Laos have claimed that they have had no new COVID cases for something nationally for about eight days. Uh, It's really weird because, you know, maybe they're just lying. That wouldn't be weird. But let's hope that there isn't a massive explosion when subsequently to making a potentially false claim, they let everything go back to normal again. Yeah, and this Uh, is the thing. We've got through round one where everyone's freaked out, but we're all going to start getting tired. And then we'll have winters. And, you know, tonight when we had the news on, uh, it was a senior, I think it was an epidemiologist, making the point he's not worried about this winter because we're all still switched on. He's worried about, you know, December to February in the Northern Hemisphere and July, August, September next year here. Yeah, the idea we're all being, a bit tired. Well, the idea being that it comes back every year now. Well, no, we just have- that it hasn't been eradicated. And by then we've come, you know, we've, we've released you know, the pressure and because we've released the pressure, it goes wild. But who's to say it doesn't mutate in the same way that the flu does. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, but come on. We don't want to, that for the moment, the moment would have too many people with their head in their armpit crying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a shocking thing. And I think you could make the, I, I think what we're really saying, I've been through a little bit of uh, a couple of traumatic experiences in my life and it, what seems to be bizarre it seems like everyone in the entire world is going through a genuinely traumatic experience right now. The entire globe, as if it were a, some kind of some kind of global war. But even Which worse, could be very because positive. But mm. it, it might be. But I mean, it's. It, I, I think the entire. I can't think of anyone who would be really accepted from a sense of shock at what's going on right now. I mean, I wonder what it's like being on a tiny Pacific Island where, you know, no one on your Island's got it, but you now have to maintain delinking from the world. I mean, what's worse, the disease or not being able to get anything you need in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's astronomically catastrophic. If it is positive, positive in the more conceptual kind of broader sense of being a positive effective experience which is uh, well here like you've got to be viewing that. in sort of the stoic way i do of not necessarily being part of the i can affirm myself in a positive way way mm. <laughs> yeah because yeah. i can affirm myself in a positive way, way. <laughs> it's it's yeah that's right it's not immediately positive it's going to be a post-traumatic growth uh, <laughs> yeah. which again is really all stoicism in the roman sense was but uh, i mean, look just to be real for a second 
you're out on the street. You see your soul brother walking down the other the other way. Are we ever going to be able to give each other an effing hug? Is, I think we just. I think we just will. Is it? Is that ever without worrying about the virus? Are we ever going to be able to hug our our bloody friends again? You know, it's really. Eh, I don't I think get we just too depressed. I think we just will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think people will behave with strangers, but I think people with their collective, their group, that's where this stuff will break first. And my feeling is when we see outbreaks, you will be able to see the map line of the outbreak very closely to the community in which it got loose. Yeah, right. Okay. That's fascinating because it almost alleviates any responsibility of any um, uh, government or, uh, let's say, entity of spreading the virus because at some point even if we even if even if let's say the ccp had appropriately warned everyone that this was coming because even if there were warnings it wasn't appropriate and it wasn't an appropriate amount or through the appropriate channels Mm. um and we were able to basically isolate it within china i think saying that we, we would just get tired and we would just eventually start to kind of socialize interact let's say with with people it would just eventually spread it, it almost kind of alleviates responsibility of anyone who's kind of done wrong in terms of how they've reported this this is why i don't like the fact that some places are trying claiming to eradicate it like it's a delusion you can buy yourself time to build up your system to build up your processes to prepare your population but don't delude yourself you can eradicate we don't know enough to know if that's even possible. Yeah. So the New Zealand idea, oh, we've eradicated it. No, you've isolated yourselves. That's all you've done. It's been and effective. That is unsustainable. <laughs> yeah, but it's been effective for now. Yeah, but it, you know what? The legacy of that in terms of a political campaign will live on forever. Well, live on for a while until they recognise with no tourism, mm. all they've got is the wine industry. Most people, it's a pretty good thing to have when you can't go anywhere and can't do anything. And wool. <laughs> Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. yeah. Wearing, wearing wool while drinking Sauvignon. Freda! Freda, pass me the ring. I, I can't. I can't get within 1.5 meters. I leave it. I leave it on a rock. And then I'll back away and you can come up and get it. Yes. And then Gollum runs out and goes, ha ha, it's mine. <laughs> My precious. <laughs> mm. My precious personal Well, space. we started staying off of COVID, then we went COVID, then we went weird. We mm-hmm. pretty much covered all the bases. <laughs> I like it. Is that your cue to end? Is that, was that what, what I'm interpreting? Well, not we don't have to, but it seems okay. we've gone full circle. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, uh, I guess I'll finish up by asking, um, I'll go around the table, I suppose. Is there anything that you guys have had going on this week or that you would like to bring up as a, a kind of final point of discussion? And I'll start with Peter or I can start with David. If, if... Yeah, I'll start with Peter. We'll start, no, with... start with David, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with David. Sorry, David. All right. I've been reading a fascinating book or well, listening to a fascinating book called Active Measures, all about disinformation. Mm-hmm which has got me so excited about studying strategic communications so that I can think about all the dastardly ways to do information warfare. Ooh, cool. 
Ooh. So I think I may end up in two years from now becoming the you know, the most dastardly dude in podcasting on disinformation. Ooh. Ooh, disinformation. What's, the, what's the most interesting thing you've read so far? Um, I'm basically in the late 1950s, early 60s at the moment, and it's a campaign run by the Soviet Union with support of the Czechs to make it look like Nazism is still a mega problem in West Germany, so West Germany won't be allowed to rearm. Huh. And it very nearly worked. Oh, that's huge. Mm. How strange. I wonder how, much, how many of the disinform, disinformation campaigns that we see on daily, or that I especially, well, I feel like I see a lot on Facebook from day to day uh, are intentional in that way. That's interesting. Yeah, because just stupid people is a different thing. This is yeah, <laughs> smart people being deliberate to mess with stupid people and mess with smart people too. And that's what's so frightening. What, okay. Relating this back to Facebook, and this could be a very long conversation, maybe one that we need to have another for another time. And possibly we've already covered it in our, one of our previous conversations, but what is the responsibility of smart people on things like Facebook to, and, and Facebook itself as the, like, let's say the establishment to falsify, let's say, uh, all of the disinformation that comes across their desk, let's say. That sounds like a whole episode to me. Okay. Because, well, no, just because that is that whole thing of if you believe you have a greater insight that would enhance the well being and flourishing of other people, one, how do you know you're right? And two, mm. what responsibility do you have to try and implement it potentially mm. against other people's wishes? Mm. That is essentially do we want the philosopher king? Yeah. Cause which is fascinating. And maybe the three of us should do an episode called, would you invest us as the philosopher Kings? <laughs> that's like a, actually, that's a fun idea for an episode. You guys want to do that? Absolutely. We can try and make the arguments. Should or shouldn't you invest us as the philosopher Kings? Mm-hmm. I like it. Sounds good to me. What um, it reminds me of is a Jermaine Clement, a, uh, uh, Kiwi uh, comedian, Jermaine Clements. Uh, I think I think it was his tweet, which was something like, "Isn't it amazing how Twitter was invented at exactly the same time we all became experts?" <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, Peter. Uh, you, anything you would like to raise uh, at the end? Anything? Yeah. Yeah, I've been um, I've been reading uh, some more Haruki Murakami this week. A Japanese author uh, writes these beautiful, beautiful books. They're um, kind of it's like um, I'm not sure if I'm using the term correctly. It's kind of like a magical realism, mm. kind of uh, books on the twilight of reality, where coincidences just uh, start to get a little bit too meaningful. If you're interested in that type of thing, definitely check out Haruki Murakami. What are you reading this week? Uh, I'm reading IQ84. Got um, that as an audio book, but I've never had it, sort of never got round to starting. It's huge. It's 46, I think it's 36 or 46 hours. That's kind of why I haven't started. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of wonderful though as well. If you're okay. looking for a, um, if you're looking for a really fascinating one that you might really like that might be a bit shorter is the Wind Up Bird Chronicles. The subplot, one of the subplots in that is about Manchuria, um, uh, Manchuria in World War II. Uh, when the, which is, the Japanese invaded and brutalized it. Exactly. It's really yeah. fascinating. It's a little B plot in it, and, and it's really great, and it might be a bit shorter. 
Anyway, there's a couple of audio books. Um, the audio books on Audible are really fantastic as well if you are looking for a way to get into it. Audible, sponsor us. <laughs> Please sponsor us, Audible. I don't want to engage them on their sponsorship um, program because it's all based on how many people actually use us as the link to start their audible membership. Oh, which means we'd be screwed. And I suspect yeah. that all of our audience are pretty much already. Um, yeah, they're already there. We're not going to bring any new customers <laughs> yeah. because the kind of people who listen to us are going to be people that listen to audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah. We'd be better off trying to engage with publishing companies that have audiobooks as well. Oh, Podium Publishing, you have all the hardcore military sci-fi. Yeah, we could do. We must have a like new that. podcast called Death and Mayhem in the Galaxy. <laughs> or we can just start pegging to a lower demographic, like way lower people who are people who aren't going to be on Audible. <laughs> I'm putting that. I'm putting that in the uh, the opening. <laughs> yeah, combine that and Churchill. Yeah, perfect, perfect. <laughs> oh man. Well, you guys have had fairly interesting weeks. I haven't. I've been thinking a lot about trying to ignore sounds because it's part of my mandate in my new degree we kind of touched on it at the start of the podcast which was kind of this whole mindfulness thing but um we've spent most of my semester looking at how to focus in on certain kinds of or, or do different kinds of listening now some of our exercises are how to ignore sounds and uh and that's kind of where i had that thought where basically the same kinds of skills that you use to focus in on something is the same kind of skill that you would use to ignore something yeah it's but the same level of deliberate concentration the yeah. only time that i've had success with it is precisely in being shifting my focus from something to something else yeah. um and i can successfully do that by kind of blocking my ears or something if i want and then kind of resetting myself and starting with a new sound stage again and just focusing on something else so it's been kind of interesting Been getting really into my um, uh, kind of the whole process of ch changing audio from analog to digital, but that's a, it's a whole nerdy kind of other realm. So, but yeah, uh, that's, that's been my week. And um, if anyone finds it interesting and I doubt they will, but please email me because I'll happily talk about it for a whole half hour. <laughs> oh, listen, we just won't know what to ask you necessarily. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm still in my first year. So, and still first semester. So I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but uh, I have a whole headphone amplifier and audio uh, DAC on digital analog converter coming. Uh, and I'm going to have this desk set up very well in terms of fidelity soon. So it's it's been a process that has just made me realize how much trash we listen to all the time. But yep. <laughs> um, so that's been fun. But yeah, nothing productive in, in the ways of uh, uh, reading anything. Only thing I, I did do was re-listen to the podcast that we did with um, Phil Lawn about uh, ecological economics. Ecological economics. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a lot to learn in that one. Yeah, that's that's really really good fun. I really I like I, I've I've listened to it three times now actually because you can just pick up stuff from it mm. each time. Um, I, I I really enjoy it. So recommend that one to the listeners um, if you haven't already listened to it. And uh, I guess with that, um, I'll say cheers and uh thank you both for joining us thank you peter cheers and thank you dave good evening gentlemen good evening listeners